We're going to look at the account in John chapter 3. It's familiar, I believe, to many of you, but if not, this is the first time. I'll try to give you some background, but let's open in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to open your word, the freedom within this country to study it, and that I have the privilege of being able to preach it tonight. Lord, I pray that I would do justice to the Word of God in presenting it accurately and with boldness. Lord, I pray for those that may be with us this evening that do not yet know You as Savior. Maybe they have been thinking about it. Maybe they have talked about it, but they've never turned to You. They've never placed their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that tonight would be the night of their salvation. It's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen. I've titled this message, if you happen to be jotting notes down, Thinking About Jesus or Turning to Jesus. I went to a public high school. It was a large public high school. And we had an assembly that would gather at times, and it was called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I was involved uh, in sports. I, I ran track. I played soccer. And so I would go to Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I would tell you that of the 250, 300 people that would show up for that, I'm pretty sure that donuts were the operative force of bringing people out. Um, I remember it being a time that they would play some goofy games. Uh, They would try to entertain the students, and then they'd eat donuts, and they'd kind of talk to each other, and and, uh, that was about it. I, I, I don't know if it was just the fellowship they were supposed to have because they were, you know, claiming to be Christians, but there really wasn't a lot of content that was given, at least my experience in my high school. And then there was the, um, the days that we would have the meet me at the flagpole. So we would go to the flagpole and pray, and the high school that I attended, um, the flagpole out front of the school, directly across from what was known as the natatorium, and all of the students in our school that wanted to smoke, they weren't able to do it on school property. So they would all go across the street off of the school property, and there was this congregation of students, and that's where, they would, that's where they would smoke. Well, if you were at the flagpole on that day and you were praying, about the time that school's going to begin, you'd have that entire entourage of those that had been out getting their morning smoke. They would make their way past the flagpole. And I'll tell you that the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, 250, turned into about maybe 75 at Meet Me at the Flagpole. And then when I was a senior in the high school, I had started a Bible study, and we were going to meet in the library about 7 a.m., and we had to have a proctor, one of the teachers, uh, be present at that time. And in that Bible study, there was about 10. Now, you realize that the change of this is that if it's fun, if it's kind of the amicable environment, you can draw a big crowd. If you add a little bit of hostility the potential of being made fun of, having fellow students walk by and mock you and you know throw a cigarette butt on the ground near you where you're praying, the crowd thins. If it requires even more, getting out of bed, meeting at 7 a.m. when all of the other students could have been asleep prior to the homeroom meeting of the day, it thins even more. Maybe it's that in an amicable situation, you are willing to talk about Jesus to think about Jesus, to even participate in group settings where it's familiar to be singing and and being a part of the Christian faith, if you will, but maybe you've never turned your heart truly 
to Jesus Christ. I want you to see the person in this passage. His name is Nicodemus, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doth evil hateth the light, neither cometh of the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh of the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God." Now, I'm not going to take you on a lengthy trip of the background, but I will tell you there is a fascinating rabbit trail that I am still on, and I'm just going to kind of tune you into it and then uh, set you loose at a different time, maybe do some digging. There are many historians, including Charles Spurgeon's pastor, John Gill, and the records within the Talmud, specifically Tanath chapter 3, that believe that this Nicodemus, Nakdemon in Hebrew, is the same as Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. Some believe that Flavius Josephus, the early church historian, was in fact the brother of Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, and that his name was actually Josephus Ben-Gurion. Third angle, others have asserted that Flavius Josephus was actually the Roman name for one Joseph of Arimathea, of John 19.38, Mark 15.43, Matthew 27.57, implying that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were more than fellow disciples. Now, I would simply say, I'm not putting a period on that, but there's a huge question mark. And I have enjoyed the study that it's kind of uncovered, but it's, it's kind of like the uh, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. I don't know that I'm going to get the rest of that story, but I want to tell you about this story. I want you to see, first of all, the Sanhedrin was brought under King Herod's control as soon as he became king. Pharisees believed a person could be in the kingdom of God if they were born an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. 
If a Gentile desired to be in the kingdom, they had to convert to Judaism by act of circumcision and strict obedience to the Mosaic law. From that point, it was one's works that lifted up a person to a point of prominence. Almsgiving, fasting, and prayer were sure signs of a righteous life in their thinking. Even though the only mandatory fast was the Day of Atonement, many Pharisees would fast twice a week, Monday and Thursday, even as we see in Luke 18, 11 through 12. Many in Jerusalem were witnesses to Christ's miracles, and as a result, they believed Him. Nicodemus sought to find out what was happening by speaking with the one who was leading the movement. John 2, 23 Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. First thing I want you to note, and then consider in your own life, we see his thinking. We see his thinking in verse 1 and 2. He visits Jesus at night. In the day, Christ would have been crowded by followers and those who scorned him. Based off of the words given in Scripture, I would make the assertion there's no indication that Nicodemus was trying to be crafty in the timing of this meeting. Nor does Scripture paint a picture of a man who's trying to catch Jesus in his teaching. Nicodemus is complimentary. He's pleasant in the meeting. His demeanor casts one of being inquisitive, not vindictive or accusatory. He comes with questions And he leaves with more questions than he came with. He believed Jesus was good. Here's what he said. Rabbi, the official title is master. It's a title of honor. The word speaks of great and large with respect to the knowledge and the understanding that the person would possess. Secondly, he says, thou art a teacher come from God. He thought Christ might be similar to Moses, Joshua, Elijah, or Elisha. Thirdly, he says, no man can do these miracles except God be with him. Now, miracles in Jerusalem occurred during two periods. The first being the exodus from Egypt and their conquering of Canaan, and the second during Ahab's reign and Elijah's life. It's interesting to note the responses that Nicodemus had towards the miracles contrasted by the responses of the other Pharisees. His heart was tender, not hard. Nicodemus believed the work was from God, not the devil, as the other Pharisees believed. Matthew 12, 22-24. Physical rebirth for the Gentiles would make sense. Judaism was considered a rebirth for a converted Gentile. Gentiles were not, nor could they be, descendants of Abraham. Yet, physical rebirth for a Jew did not make sense to him. He was born a Jew. He believed eternal life was rightly his because of his physical birth. It's why the conversation with Christ was crafted in such a way. He's asking, would it be possible for a man to go back into his mother's womb? He's saying, I I am a Jew. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. Church historians say that Nicodemus was one of three of the wealthiest individuals in Jerusalem at this time. So as a Jew who's prominent, who's wealthy, who might be able to say, I have the physical lineage of being righteous, why would you imply that I need to go through the Gentile conversion process of rebirth and following after that which I already am? So now I want you to see his tenderness. Turn with me to John 7. Four chapters later, from this first meeting with Jesus Christ, John chapter 7, 
We'll read beginning in verse 37. John 7, beginning in verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said of a truth, This is the prophet. Others said, notice, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David, not of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Notice that line of questioning in verse 48. They aren't just concerned about the general public believing Jesus Christ. They want to know, are there any amongst our circle as Pharisees who are believing on Jesus Christ? Verse 49 but this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know not what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. I don't want you to miss verse 50. Verse 50 is that chink in the armor. It's where the non-condescending, questioning Nicodemus, who I'm making the case, I believe firmly that that meeting with Christ at night was of an individual who was torn up on the inside because of what he had seen and because of what he had heard, and he wanted genuinely to know. And I envision him before he met Christ that night, putting on his sandals, thinking, if this is true, everything I have lived for is false. If Jesus Christ is real, and if he is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, then what I'm doing as a Pharisee, by the way, many believe he was a part of the Sanhedrin, he would have known as he was lacing his sandals and headed out the door at night and came upon Jesus. And I believe with a spirit of humility, he wasn't attributing any of the miracles to Beelzebub, the devil. He wasn't saying to Jesus something that was, I'm going to catch you. Think of how many times the Word of God prefaces that when the Pharisees spoke to Jesus, they were trying to trick him. They were trying to tempt him. They were trying to trap him. Nicodemus didn't come in that way. I don't believe in John 3 that Nicodemus was saved. I believe that he was thinking. He's thinking about Jesus. And I believe at this point in John 7, as he's with his own, he's with the Pharisees, and they want to lay hold on Christ, and they do it in a way that would be against the law, he feels the need to speak up. He feels the need, if you will, to make a defense for Jesus Christ, 
He couldn't remain silent any longer. Again, I'm not saying he's yet saved. I'm saying that there's something in his heart that tells him this is more than following the entrapment of religion. It's more than just going after, let's talk about Jesus. Let's just talk about Jesus. I'm thinking about Jesus. His heart is turning. I see the tenderness and the turning within his heart. By the way, if the Pharisees had been more astute, they would have remembered that Christ was born in Bethlehem, but he lived in Nazareth. And by the way, as far as a prophet not ever having been from Galilee, Jonah was a prophet and he was from Nazareth, Galilee specifically. At this point, it may have been Nicodemus whose tender heart was leading him away from the Pharisees into the foot of the cross, the very facet of Christ's words that seemed so perplexing. Christ had foretold of the day that he would be lifted up just like the serpent in the wilderness. That day was coming soon. Remember the words from John 3, the verses specifically 13 through 16. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Even as the serpent was lifted up, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I think those words, not having firm footing because it had not yet occurred, I think they were still a part of his thinking. I want you to notice thirdly, his turning. He had a new view of the cross. Turn with me to John 19. John chapter 19. During Christ's life, Nicodemus was a defender of Jesus. And after Christ's death, Nicodemus was a disciple. Of Jesus. John 19, beginning in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was in high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it, Bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he, what he saith is true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now note verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Here's the question that I would pose to you tonight. Where was Nicodemus at the point of the crucifixion. How was he in such proximity with Joseph of Arimathea that he was so readily available with a hundred pounds of myrrh to anoint the body of Christ? I believe that he was 
possibly following in the shadows. It tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but secretly for fear of the Jews. I believe it's possible that Nicodemus also, as one following kind of from a distance, was able to see. Now, I can't put a period where there isn't a period. But I do believe in my heart that Nicodemus at some point, and maybe it was at the point that Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross and it was lifted up and it was put in place. Maybe the words from John 3 were ringing in his head. That night meeting when Jesus Christ had said, as the serpent of Moses had to be lifted up, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Did he have a view of the cross? Did he get to see Jesus Christ in such a way lifted up that it became the point of his own conversion and putting his faith in the Messiah? At what point did he look to the cross and see the Son of Man? He had a new view of Christ. He believed Jesus was God. By handling the body of Christ with Joseph, both Nicodemus and Joseph would have been defiled for a period of seven days and would not have been able to partake in the great Passover feast. We cannot make light of this that for one that was a part of the Sanhedrin to have missed the Passover because of defilement for touching a body, that would not have been a light thing. It should be noted that the very same event, the trial and the crucifixion, became the backdrop for the disciples forsaking Christ. They ran and hid behind closed doors. Nicodemus was not concerned for his wealth, his reputation, and his well-being, for he knew when he witnessed the crucified Lord, he in fact was looking at God. When no one else stepped up to claim the body of Christ, Nicodemus, along with Joseph, did just that. I find it staggering when it says he gave 100 pounds of myrrh. Myrrh comes from myrrh branches. The resin, once it's extracted, is processed and used for perfume, medicine, and anointing the dead. The Roman pound is a little less than the American pound, but would it still have been an exceedingly large amount, around 75 pounds? Myrrh was given to Christ at his birth, and it was given at his death. It would have been considered acceptable to present a pound of myrrh for the anointing of a deceased individual. A pound. And that's if you could afford it. You do remember that they weren't embalming the bodies. Think of Lazarus. Just a couple of days' time, that body is going to stink. And as family and friends come, if the body was placed in a tomb, even though it might be cold and dark, and they're doing all they can to preserve the putrefaction, the decomposition of the body, just so the family can come and stand at a distance without having to cover their faces. They knew that decay was going to set in. And in the process, if you had money and wealth, maybe you would be able to have some myrrh that would make it fragrant enough, much like perfume testers in a department store, one spritz of it, you smell it, and then you can't really smell anything else for a while. You just have the scent of the perfume. You might even see that at some of those counters, they might have a, a little tray with some coffee beans in it. It's supposed to recalibrate your scent. If you're trying to buy perfume for your wife and you've sniffed three of them, they all smell the same after that. 
You don't know what you're smelling. You're like, uh, it all smells, it all smells good. And then you smell the coffee beans. It's, they're trying to recalibrate your, your olfactory senses. And then you can continue on. That's the whole idea with the myrrh. Let me give you some background regarding this. 100 pounds of myrrh was an incredible amount. Some estimate that one pound of myrrh in Christ's day would have cost as much as $4,000. Thus, Nicodemus' gift would have cost him $400,000. Don't tell me that he was just talking about Jesus. I believe what happened from John 3 was that he was thinking. He's thinking. He's thinking. I believe in John chapter 7, he starts to have a tenderness. There's a turning. He recognizes, you know what? When I speak up in the midst of the Pharisees, I'm going to be the only guy. They've just asked the question, are there any of us? Are there any of the Pharisees that are following after him? He knew he was sealing his own fate by defending Jesus in John 7. And I believe that by the time John 19 rolled around, he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I believe personally that when he came with 100 pounds of myrrh, he was making a statement. I'm not bringing a pound. I'm bringing 100 pounds. I am all in. May my life, may my testimony, may everything that I have be for the person of Jesus Christ. It wasn't that, hey, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, when it's convenient and they serve donuts, we say that we are Christians. It wasn't even the commitment of let's pray at the flagpole and maybe have a few people look with disdain at us. It was far more than just saying, hey, let's have a 7 a.m. Bible study. Nicodemus would have known this passage, Psalm 45, 8. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. He would know that this is directly referencing the Messiah, not a rabbi, not just a good man, not just a prophet, but God himself. Nicodemus was making a statement of faith as much as he was a statement for a funeral. Was it faith in action or foolishness? The Pharisees had stated that anyone who sided with Christ would be thrown out of the temple. This was far more than simply losing visitation, rights, and worship. He would lose his high position. He would lose his office. He would lose his standing in the Jewish society and would not even be allowed to buy goods from Jewish merchants. It would have been total banishment from the Jewish community. The true cost of his gift, 100 pounds of myrrh, may never be known in the earthly sense, but the true gain most definitely is out of this world. I'm going to ask you tonight, are you willing to think about Jesus? Are you willing to talk about Jesus? Are you at the level that maybe you have a tenderness towards Jesus? Are you willing tonight to turn to Jesus Christ and allow Him to save you so that someday you're not at the Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, great white throne judgment. Folks, I will never be at that judgment. You know why? Because the blood of Jesus speaks for me. All of those who will not be at the Bema seat judgment that then are at the great white throne judgment, here's the sad reality. 
they will be tried for their works. Because the finished work of Jesus Christ, they rejected. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Won't you receive him as your Savior?